you please grab your Bibles and we'll have our scripture reading for today. Today we'll be reading out of Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Pastor Bruce will be speaking on the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Now if you follow along with me as I read Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, Go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray. Lord God, you are an almighty, powerful God. For today, we take the time to meditate on a cornerstone of our salvation, God, is the resurrection of your Son. The Son who died for our sins and still could not be held in the tomb. Thank you for this chance and opportunity to worship you this morning, God. Give Pastor Bruce the words to speak and us the ears to listen. In your name, amen. Well, today we are celebrating the defining moment in all of history. The day Jesus defeated death and resurrected from the grave. If the story of Jesus ended with the cross, it could not be called good news. Jesus is dead means Jesus fell. Jesus is dead means Jesus lied. Jesus is dead means Jesus was a fraud. However, the story of Jesus, as we have sung about already, does not end with a a lifeless body that's laying to rest in a tomb. No, something happened that forever changed the course of human history. And of course, we know it to be Jesus rose from the dead. And so the tomb is empty. The Lord has risen. And Jesus is alive today. And for this reason... Millions of Christ followers across the world believe that the two most important events in the history of the world are the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if that is true, that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, if this is real, then nothing is more important in our lives, correct? But if it did not happen, then there's 
let's be honest, really no compelling reason to follow Jesus since he would just be another fraud. But if it did happen, then nothing is more crucial than finding out what it means and what it brings to our lives even today. And so what I want us to do this morning is to simply behold these two events in Matthew 28. One, that Jesus was crucified. And the other, that Jesus is alive today. Both are utterly crucial for our salvation. In fact, uh, therefore, we need to behold these two events. And I say behold because as Jeremy read the passage of Scripture for us there in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, or Matthew chapter 28, Matthew uses this word four different times. Behold here, it simply means to take a look at, to pay attention to. And so I invite you to do that with me this morning, to pay attention to these two most crucial events in the history of the world. So number one, behold, Jesus was crucified on the cross. We'll start at verse one. Look what it says. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, this setting here is rather significant in that it provides historical details. Matthew provides us with a a real day in history with two real people in history. In fact, these two people, we might call them the two Marys because one is named Mary Magdalene while the other is named Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And these two women in particular were there Friday to behold the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And now they have returned on Sunday morning for the surprise of their lives. Notice what it says in verse 2. It reads, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. Verse 3 says, His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And then according to verse 5, it says, But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. And that's the first claim that I want us to behold. Jesus, who was crucified. So what do we need to know about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ so that his resurrection is seen for what it really is? Well, let me just simply give you five truths about the crucifixion. The first of which is this, it was public. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was public. In fact, you go to the book of Acts and there Paul tells King Agrippa in Acts 26, 26, he says, this thing, referring to the crucifixion, did not happen in a corner, he says. In other words, Jesus' crucifixion happened in a public place for everyone to see, everyone to witness and view. In fact, according to Matthew 27, there were crowds of people who saw it happen. The religious leaders were there. The secular leaders were involved. Even Secular historians in the earliest centuries treated the death of Jesus as a historical fact. One Roman historian who was born in A.D. 55, he records, and I quote, Christ had been put to death as a punishment during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And of course, we know who he is. We've read about him. 
And so the crucifixion of Jesus was public. People saw this take place. But it was also very, very painful. And that brings us to point new. Two. In fact, listen to how an article in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia describes the crucifixion. Not just Jesus' crucifixion, but all crucifixions during his day. It says, The punishment was meted out for such crimes as treason, desertion in the face of the enemy, robbery, piracy, assassination, sedition, etc. Among the Romans, crucifixion was preceded by scourging, undoubtedly to hasten impending death. The victim then bore his own cross, or at least the upright beam to the place of execution. The number of nails used seems to have been indeterminate. A tablet on which the feet rested on, or which the body was partly supported, seemed to have been a part of the cross to keep the wounds from tearing through the transfixed hands and feet. The suffering of death by crucifixion was intense, especially in hot climates. The swelling around the nails in the torn, lacerated tendons and nerves caused excruciating agony. The arteries of the head and stomach were filled with blood, and a terrific throbbing headache ensued. The mind was confused and filled with anxiety and dread. The victim of crucifixion literally died a thousand deaths. The sufferings were so frightful, Josephus, a historian, wrote that even among the raging passions of war, pity was sometimes provoked. The length of this agony was wholly determined by the constitution of the victim. But death rarely ensued before 36 hours had elapsed. Death was sometimes hastened by breaking the legs of the victims and by a hard blow delivered under the armpit before crucifixion. The sudden death of Christ evidently was a matter of astonishment. And so there's no surprise then that when we read in Mark chapter 15, 37, that Jesus gave this loud cry that his suffering in those last hours was indescribable. It was very, very painful. The crucifixion, though, was obvious was also planned by God. So it was public, it was painful, and it was planned by God. Jesus himself, he told his disciples several times that this was actually his destiny. It was the very purpose of why he came to earth. For instance, in Matthew 17, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, the disciples prayed to God, Truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And so the death of Jesus here, his crucifixion, listen, it was not some historical fluke. It was not an accident. It was not even just a merely an act of injustice. It was all planned by God the Father. And this is the teaching of the New Testament, such as in John 3.16. We know this verse where it says, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten Son. And in Romans 8.22 it says, God did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all. 
So Jesus' crucifixion was actually God's plan from before the beginning of the foundations of the world here. It was not by accident. And the reason why brings us to point number four here. A fourth truth, that the crucifixion of Jesus was punishment for our sin. This was God's plan from the beginning. That his only son should be born as a man, live a perfect sinless life, and then die. But not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. Paul put it like this in Galatians 1.4. Christ gave himself for our sins according to the will of our God and Father. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul writes, Christ died for what? Our sins according to the Scriptures. And you take all this together, and let me tell you, it brings us to this fifth and final truth about the crucifixion, that it is precious to those of us who believe in it. And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. He's speaking about us. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then Peter adds in 1 Peter 2, 7, Therefore, to you who believe, he, that is Christ, he is what? He's precious. He's precious to us. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is precious to those who believe. Why? Because it was by his death that we are ransomed from our sin and guilt and condemnation. We are rescued from the pits of hell and we are given in exchange eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. Eternal life to all who believe. This is why he was crucified. His crucifixion, it was public. It was painful. It was planned by God. It was punishment for our sin. And it is precious to those who believe. And my hope here, my prayer here for all of us here this morning, is that we will behold Jesus for who he is and what he has done for us on the cross. And that he will become precious to you. But Jesus cannot be precious if he is still dead. And so his resurrection is just as cru- cru- critical, just as crucial as his crucifixion. So let us now behold his resurrection. Behold, Jesus is risen from the dead. If you go back to Matthew chapter 28, there in verse 5, the angel tells these two women... He says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but don't miss what the angel says next in verse 6. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. For more than 2,000 years, though, the devil has been trying to discredit the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, why? Because the resurrection spells his defeat and the devil knows it. Satan knows that if you and I believe in this critical truth, this great truth, this great transcendent truth, that Jesus rose from the dead, then it will change your life. In fact, more documents exist proving that Jesus actually rose from the dead than documents proving that George Washington actually crossed the Delaware River. 
We simply base our history upon the factual evidence that we have. And the facts stack up. Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, in all four Gospels, we are told that the the very first eyewitnesses to this event, to the risen Lord, were women. And these two women, who were last at the cross, are now first at the tomb. Now, if the Gospel writers had wanted to fabricate a resurrection story, they would not have included this particular story. They would not have recorded here, Matthew especially, that two women were involved in this. And here's why. Because in ancient culture, women had a very low social status to the point that their testimony was not even allowed or or accepted in a court of law. And that's why when these two women then tell the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead, they didn't believe them at first. And yet Jesus first appeared to women, which authenticates his resurrection. So what did these women see that just filled their hearts with joy? Well, first of all, notice this. The two women go to see Jesus' tomb, and what do they find? Well, they find it empty. Jesus is not there. These two women went to the tomb hoping, expecting to finish the burial process that they began earlier by anointing Jesus' body with perfume and spices. But the thing that they absolutely did not expect was an empty tomb with the stone rolled away and an angel sitting on top of that stone. But that's exactly what they found. It's what they saw. Look what it says again in verses 1 through 4. Notice it with me in your Bibles. It says, Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, Jesus was supposed to be dead in the tomb. But the only dead men we read about are these guards who shook for fear and became like dead men. And for good reason. These Roman guards had failed to do their duty of keeping the tomb guarded and sealed but they were no match against the angel of the Lord who, who rolled back the stone from the door of the tomb. And the reason the stone was rolled away was not to let Jesus out. Please don't think that. Jesus didn't need to be let out. Oh, no, it was rolled away to let the women in so that they might see that Jesus was not there. And you just got to love the angel. Where is he at now? He's sitting on top of the stone, which was supposed to seal the tomb. But as the angel sits on the stone, it's kind of like this visible symbol of Christ's victory over death in the grave. And I just love that image. In fact, if you watched the Final Four last night, the Gonzaga game versus UCLA, you saw the same image at the very end of the game. As the clock is ticking down, three seconds left to go, the game is tied, and one of the players from Gonzaga, Suggs, comes down the court and almost at half court heaves a shot up and it banks in for a three-point win. And what does he do? He storms off the court. He goes to the sideline and he jumps on a table, a scorer's table there. He's standing on the table celebrating. And everybody knows what that's all about. 
He just scored. He just won. It's a symbol of victory. This is the same thing with the angel here standing on the, t- on the stone, the empty tomb. Listen, it is a significant piece of evidence for the resurrection. Listen, producing a body would have been the easiest way to discredit the resurrection. And we know from Matthew's account that great measures were taken to pro- actually protect Christ's body from being stolen out of the tomb. That's why the religious leaders earlier had already gone to Pilate saying in Matthew 27, 63 and 64, they say, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, that's what they're calling Christ now, said, after three days I will rise again. Now, they didn't actually believe Jesus, but they were kind of covering their bases here. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them in verse 65, Okay, take a guard, go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so you can see the extreme measures that were put into place to make sure Jesus stayed dead and buried and nobody could steal his body. Obviously, Jesus' enemies remembered his words better than his disciples did. They had this fear that Jesus would do what he said he would do, and of course he did. He rose from the grave. Now, I want you to notice something here in this story. It's rather interesting. That the first people to behold the evidence of the empty tomb are Jesus' enemies. The Roman guards who had been placed there. And then these two women see it. So don't miss this. Here's what's taking place. The soldiers and the women are witnesses to the very same facts, to the same reality. They all see the angel. They all see the great earthquake, even feel it. They all see the stone rolled away. They all see the empty tomb, but Only the women believed. You see, the problem of believing Jesus' resurrection is not because of a lack of testimony. It's not even because of a lack of credibility. It's not because of a lack of evidence even. Listen, the evidence piles up. It is stacked up for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're so skeptical about that, you can go study it for yourself. There are books written about this. The evidence stacks up. And so the problem of believing is not because of a lack of credibility or historical evidence. The problem of a lack of believing is always in the heart. And that's why we need God to open our hearts to believe. That's why we pray for our lost friends and family members and neighbors. God, open their hearts. May let Take away the blinders that Satan has put on them to see their need for Jesus, to see who they are without him, and that is sinners. The angel now confronts these two women with the greatest news in all the world. But first, the angel tells them in verse 5, do not be afraid, which is quite normal 
For in the Bible, when someone encounters an angel, he or she fears, that is why the angel first has to say, fear not or do not be afraid. If the angel doesn't say that, you and I would keep shaking in our boots. But the angel has some good news to announce to these two women. Look what the angel says, beginning in verse 5. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And I just love this, what the angel says, because right there, Jesus' resurrection invites investigation. Jesus' resurrection invites investigation. It doesn't demand from you and I blind faith or some leap in the dark. The angel doesn't say, oh, the stone is rolled away, but there's no need to check inside the tomb to make sure that Jesus is gone. Rather, the angel invites these two women to use their senses, their God-given senses, to actually make sense of what's going on. In other words, the angel says, come, come, see with your own eyes the place where the Lord lay. And these two Marys will actually do that. They will see and they will touch Jesus. They will behold him in the flesh by holding on to his flesh in real time, at real places, near the tomb, and soon again in Galilee. And then these two ladies are given their their mission in life, their great commission, we might call it. And off they go running to tell the other disciples what they saw. And I just love how Matthew records their mixed emotions of fear and great joy in verse 8. And new parents understand the concept of great joy mixed with fear. I mean, when they find out they're having a baby, there's, there's what? There's this overwhelming joy, is there not? And then all of a sudden, there's reality. There's this kind of this fear that sets in, and they think, I'm not prepared for this in any way. And so whatever fear these two women had, and who wouldn't have some fear after seeing what they saw, their great joy pushed them on their mission. And as they ran to tell the disciples, that's when they encounter the risen Savior. Which brings us to the second point. These two women see the risen Savior and worship him. Look what it says in verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. Now, why rejoice? Well, because Jesus is alive. That's why we rejoice. Jesus is risen from the dead, right? Jesus is standing in front of these two women who had come to mourn his death, but now there's reason to rejoice. Jesus is alive. And look at their reaction in verse 9. So they came and they held him by the feet and worshipped him. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, as you read it from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 28, you will find that Ten different times Jesus is, quote, worshipped. Ten different times. Twice after the resurrection. And such worship is always involves adoration. Go back to when Jesus was born. Think about the wise men bowing before Jesus in the manger and presenting their gifts in what? In worship in adoration. 
And in the same way, the response of these women when they saw Jesus was to do what? Was to bow down and to worship him. Listen, that is always our response to the risen Savior. When we realize what his death on the cross accomplished for us in our sins. And now he raises again. He is alive. And our response, listen, every day, but especially on Sundays, when we gather together, it is to worship corporately and also throughout the week to worship individually. That is always our response. And note that Jesus is not a spirit here. He's not a ghost. Have you ever noticed that ghosts are usually depicted without what? Without feet, right? Remember Casper the ghost? He doesn't have any feet. But here Jesus, get this, he has a resurrected body with feet, which these two women, what do they do? They cling to his feet. They are touching him. And so think about it. Our two biggest holidays across the world are what? Christmas and Easter. That's the two biggest holidays down through the centuries across the world. And they are as tangible as human skin. A baby in a manger and a man with feet standing before these women. As Frederick Bruner writes, the beautiful thing is this. God did not, quote, need a fetus for the incarnation. He did not need water for his son's baptism. He did not need a cross for his son's death or a cadaver for his son's bodily resurrection. Listen, God can squeeze water from a stone. But God used all these lowly realities to do the great work of salvation for us. Now, so much more could be said. So much more could be said. And yet, perhaps you're wondering still, well, great, that's awesome, Bruce, but what does all this mean for me today? What does the crucifixion and resurrection mean for me? Well, let me suggest to you three things that it means immediately for your life. First of all, it means that Jesus can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted. He is trustworthy. And here's why. All throughout his ministry here on this earth, Jesus declared time after again that he would what? That he would die and he would be resurrected. And if this didn't happen, then Jesus is the biggest liar in the whole world. He is probably the greatest deceiver to have ever lived. But it did happen. And the resurrection assures us that Jesus is who he says he is. What he claimed he fulfilled, his words are true and trustworthy. The resurrection proves that Jesus is all that he had said he is. In fact, throughout his life, he had claimed these roles He claimed the role of a prophet and a priest and a king. And as a king, Jesus reigned from the cross while it looked like he did not. He reigned from the cross by defeating our greatest enemy, death. As a priest, Jesus offered the final sacrifice for our sin. And as a prophet, Jesus foretold that he would die on the cross and raise from the grave. And that's exactly what he did. And so the resurrection and crucifixion mean that Jesus can be trusted. You can trust Jesus with all your life. This life and the next life. Number two, it means that you can be forgiven of your sins. Yes, apart from Jesus, listen to me, all of us here this morning, we stand guilty of sin. 
But the good news is that you can be forgiven of that sin. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And so Jesus paid for my sins with his death on the cross. That means I don't have to pay for them. Jesus took the full penalty for our sins on the cross so that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say it this way. The death of Jesus was the payment for sin. The resurrection of Jesus is the receipt. In other words, it is the proof that God accepted the sacrifice of his son on the cross. And so it means, first of all, that Jesus can be trusted. It means that you can be forgiven of your sins. And last of all, the crucifixion and resurrection means that death is not the end. Death is not the end. And since Jesus conquered death, it means death is not the end of his story or our story. It means that when we die, it is then that we truly live. This is why Paul could kind of, in a, in a good way, mock death by triumphantly saying in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A man who was on a quest for truth once said, when I looked at religion, I did so with two different questions. The first question is, has anyone ever conquered death? And the second question is, if they did, do they make a way for me to conquer death too? And he went on to say, I checked the tomb of Buddha, And it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied too. And then I checked the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, there is someone who has conquered death. And then I asked myself the second question, did he make a way for me to conquer death too? And I opened the Bible, and there Jesus said in John 11, 25, I am the resurrection And the life, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. On this Easter Sunday, listen, let us behold the risen Savior. But how tragic it would be to behold but never believe. This was the response of the religious leaders. They didn't believe. This was the response of most of the Roman guards. They didn't believe. They refused to believe in Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified on the cross, the one who rose from the dead. And as a result, they died condemned in their sins to eternal hell. Instead, follow the example of these two women who believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation. As a result, they were saved from their sins and granted eternal life. And so what does it mean to behold the risen Lord and believe? It simply means to repent of your sin and to then trust Jesus for your salvation. This is the hope of Easter. And it ultimately points us to this question, are you going to trust Jesus for your salvation? Who or what are you trusting to save you? 
Because there is more to life than just what we see now. Are you going to believe in Him for the forgiveness of your sins in eternal life? Jesus says in John 5, 24, Verily, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. And then, of course, Paul writes in Romans 10, 9 and 10, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So the question still begs, it still remains. Will you respond to Jesus Christ today if you haven't already? Will you behold the risen Lord? But more than just behold, will you believe the risen Lord in what he has done for you through his work on the cross and through the power of his resurrection? With your heads bowed, are you ready to respond to Jesus? Listen, if God is speaking to you, now is the time to respond. Right now, at this moment, in the quietness of this auditorium, right where you're seated, there's even a, a prayer there at the bottom of your notes that you can pray and cry out to God. And if God is speaking to you, let me encourage you to ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Ask Him to save you and to give you eternal life. Use that prayer as a sample prayer if need be. Our Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit draw men and women to our risen Savior. Grant your faith to those who do not know you. And may you grant the blessing now that someone would come to Jesus Christ and find the forgiveness they need and be reconciled to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen, if you pray to receive Christ, ask him to forgive you of your sins and And I'd love to know about it. I'd love to celebrate with you, talk with you. And one way you can do that is just fill out the connection card there in front of you on the backside of the pew and just check the appropriate box. You can hand it to me on the way out or put it in our offering box as you leave. And uh, love to get in contact with you. Maybe you have more questions, whatever the case may be. We're here to serve you and to help you in any way that you can in your spiritual journey of being reconciled to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ.